Well, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. James 2, 1 to 13. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew there in front of you. You'll find this on page 854 or 897, uh, depending on which printing of that you have. James chapter 2, the title of this morning's message is Don't Show Favoritism. We'll see the word favoritism maybe has a little bit broader meaning in James than we might um, first think of it as, but either way, uh, we also tend to think that this isn't a problem for us. And it's actually sort of the, the, the challenge of this passage is not that we think it, you know, it doesn't apply, it's the Bible that applies, it's just that it... It's, it's not really a problem for us, favoritism or showing partiality and that kind of thing. And uh, so our, our ears might be turned down rather than turn up. I would encourage you to turn them up. <laughs> Several years ago at the Christian school, Myrtle Grove Christian School, we invited a speaker to conduct some workshops that uh, dealt with the social dynamics of school environments, um, including bullying. In fact, that was particularly what was in view there. But one of the things this speaker highlighted in those workshops was that students tend to divide themselves and each other into kind of social tiers and categories. Uh, Some students choose which group they're going to be in, and other students are assigned to their group. You may remember that experience from middle school as well. But part of the, part of the process of, of sort of dividing themselves into groups like that is, is finding similarities and, and differences in each other. That is making distinctions. And what was especially interesting was that in, in our setting, like in most private schools in our region, probably all over the South, the majority of students are already very similar in a private school. Now, this is less true now in some places than it is uh, in others, but most of them are from upper middle class white families, and in our case, they were mostly professing Christian families too. In other words, you're really, really similar, right, in that crowd. And even then, they'll find distinctions. They'll they'll find things that make them different. And so, you know, if it's, again, upper middle class uh, white kids, then they'll uh, distinguish themselves based on which neighborhood they live in. Or or maybe, uh, you know, which ones are members of the country club. And if they're all members of the country club, then it'll be, well, whose parents on the executive board at the country club? In other words, they just, even if they're very, very similar, they tend to find differences in each other. And it's actually kind of in the context of that that, um, that, that bullying occurs. That was kind of the premise of that. Well, it all reveals kind of a natural human tendency to, to judge one another and even assign value in some cases on the basis of superficial qualities. And adults do it too. We just have a grown-up version of it. And that's why I say, if you, think, if you think the issue here doesn't apply to you, you might want to tune in, you know, dial in a little bit more carefully because there's, there's something uh, sort of in the fallen human heart that we don't just grow out of because we got out of middle school. 
And so in James chapter 2, God says that that sort of partiality really has no place in the heart of the believer or in the church community. And so that's going to be the topic of today's message. Let's look there now at James chapter 2, 1 through 13. And I'm going to ask that all rise in honor of the king who speaks in his word. James 2, beginning in verse 1, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails on one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Well, Father, as always, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it is true and living, that it is always relevant. Would you give us ears to hear today because we know that if you've said it, it is for our good. Lord, would you so work it in our hearts that it is challenging to us and yet not condemning uh, to us because you do your ways, you mean for the good of your people. And so, Lord, as we sit ready to hear from you, we ask that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and our good. And, Lord, would you move me out of the way, as always, and just use my voice as an instrument to speak to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. We saw in chapter 1 that James is very interested in how the followers of Jesus live out their faith in, you know, in practical ways. In fact, last week we brushed up against the phrase, the law of liberty, that's repeated here in the passage we just read. And, and James seems to, he doesn't really define that or explain it, but it seems to connect this with the, the body of teaching that Jesus gave us when he preached the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, Jesus gave us a new and living way 
He fulfilled the law. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? He fulfilled the law, set us free from the law of sin and death, by which people tried to obtain righteousness by keeping a set of commandments and observing a set of rituals and that sort of thing. He's, he set us free from that law. And yet, this way of life in Christ still commands something of us. And it seems this is, this is what James intends when he, when he speaks of the law of liberty. It's, it still demands something of us, this whole way of believing and living in Christ, but it's covered with his grace toward us and our grace toward other people. The graciousness we show to others because of the graciousness that's been extended to us. And yet, again, there's a way we ought to live. And so verse 1 of this passage in chapter 2 opens by saying, My brothers, show no partiality. In the New American Standard, NIV uh, uses the word favoritism, hence the title of uh, sermon. But the Greek word uh, here literally means receiving the face. Uh, so that is making, making judgments or distinctions based on surface level things, just receiving the face of things. So physical appearance, social status, race, etc. would have been how it was used even in a Hebrew context. And particularly in light of how chapter one concluded, there's an echo here of, of, the, of Old Testament passages that also state that God is, is not partial and his people ought not to be either. So in other words, James, James is not stating something new or it's not even new in the teaching of Jesus. This is, a, this is an Old Testament principle giving, given deeper meaning uh, in the fulfillment of the law by Christ. But Deuteronomy 10 verses 17 and 18 says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. You remember chapter 1 concluded with this statement that uh, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The fatherless and the widow, as he says in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He's not partial. He executes justice for those who tend often not to get justice. He has special love for them. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Now these are talking about you know, how civil authorities were to apply this principle in a legal setting. James suggests that showing partiality, though, should be all the more unacceptable in the community of Christ's followers. And he identifies three ways in which showing partiality really constitutes sin for the believer. Or, or, or maybe we would say three ways uh, in, in which partiality originates out of a sinful heart and manifests as sin itself. And that's number one, that there's a misplaced glory. Number two, a misguided judgment. And three, inequitable love. 
Okay, so our, 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 we commit the sin of partiality out of a place, number one, of a misplaced glory, two, misguided judgment, and three, inequitable love. And first, the misplaced glory, and I'll just won't linger here at all, but just very quickly look at verse one and how he frames this command not to show partiality. He says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Some other translations read, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. But he refers to him here not only as Lord, as he did in chapter uh, 1, verse 1, but, but specifically the Lord of glory. By the way, the only two times, I think, in the book of James that he mentions Jesus explicitly and calls him the Lord of glory. And so just one of the, the, the quick things we want to observe there is just if we spend time gazing on the glory of, of Christ, the gold rings and the fine clothes, so to speak, uh, just aren't all that impressive. The things that we assign glory to, in other words, in this, word, in this world, the things we're impressed by, the things we assign value to, that if we spend time gazing on the glory of Christ, they just aren't all that impressive. That if we just linger with him in his presence, in prayer, meditating on what the scripture reveals about his very nature, gazing on the glory of Christ, the things of this world don't really impress us because we have this unhealthy attraction to things in this world, but even gold does not glitter in the glory of God. Gold, gold doesn't even have a glitter in the presence of the glory of God. Its brightness outshines the brightness of every other thing. But on a more practical level, we see here favoritism or partialities is, is a result of what I've just called misguided judgment. So look at verses two through four. He says, if a man wearing a gold and fine clothing comes into your assembly and, the poor, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now that scenario may be hard to imagine in church, the, the, you know, again, in the contemporary church, the idea that a, that a rich man would get a good seat and that a poor man would be told to stand or sit on the floor. But it actually brings to mind two historic churches that I have visited in Virginia um, that, that, that aren't currently uh, this way. But... Um, but one was at Bruton Parish in uh, Colonial Williamsburg, you know, where there's a seat for the governor with a canopy over it and a, a special place there. They even have like boxed pews. It was like, you know, boxed seating at the ballpark or something. And it certainly set up the situation where somebody of more prominence or influence could be given a, a, a better seat. But the other one was um, up north of Charlottesville and it had a balcony that you, uh, you couldn't access from the main level of the church. Um, to the, the only way into the balcony stairwell was through an exterior entrance, an outside door directly into the stairwell of the balcony. The reason for that 
is the balcony is where the slaves sat. And, and essentially, folks didn't even want them passing through the same space they occupied to get into worship. How hard is that to get your mind around? The incongruity of that. But what's interesting is if you scan back the church history, you find this kind of thing um, actually very common. There were play, you know, times where there wasn't seating in church and people had to bring a stool of their own. I read a story about a woman who uh, came in and found, some, found somebody else sitting on her stool and uh, violence ensued. But in James's example, the rich man here gets a good seat. The poor man, again, either has to stand or, or sit on the floor. And he points out the irony of this because he says the poor man is chosen by God and loves God. Now, th these are not universally true that not every poor man is just saved because he's poor and not every rich man is lost because he's rich. But he is stating something um, quite common in the, the early church uh, that, that the Christian faith tended to attract um, people of lower status who were mocked by people of higher status. And um, he says the rich man is the one who oppresses them and drags them into court and blasphemes God. Again, that would have been a common pattern. And so the irony he's pointing out here is they show favor to the one who God, who honors God, okay? Show favor to the one who honors God. They show disfavor to the one, sorry, I've said that backwards. They show disfavor to the one who honors God. They showed favor to the one who dishonors God. You knew what I meant. <laughs> but but their, their values, in other words, are absolutely reversed from God's is what he's saying. They turned it perfectly upside down. I mean, they'd been a whole lot better off just to say first come, first serve, right? But if you were going to pick favored seating, uh, it, would, it, would, it would make more sense to favor the one who God favors. That's kind of what James is implying. And so when we show partiality, our judgment is misguided, first of all, because we appoint ourselves as judges. We just appoint ourselves. God doesn't appoint us. We're not elected to the position. You remember that kid when you were growing up, the, the, uh, the bossy one who just thought um, he was in charge? Like whenever the game uh, happened, you know, just, some, just somebody takes control and you're sitting there going, hey, who put you in charge? And that's sort of what we do when we show partiality. We appoint ourselves and judges, as judges, we make distinctions about the relative worth of human beings. And we just seat ourselves on the bench to make that judgment. But what's worse is, he says, we judge with evil motives. We judge with evil motives, evil intent. Because partiality is usually self-interested. It's not about giving honor to whom honor is due. It's about exchanging honor for whatever we think we can get out of it. The, the reason we show favor to somebody in that way, favoritism is, is often, I'd say even usually, because of what 
we think that promises to us. It's not a gift of honor. It's, it's, a, it's an exchange of honor for something we expect back from it. We, it might be that the, the, uh, what the rich man's money can buy, right? So you honor, you show favoritism toward the rich man because of, of what, what his money can buy that benefits you. It might be uh, favor toward the powerful person because of the influence they can provide. Maybe even in just calling off the dogs, so to speak, you know, in certain places where um, the church just lives under oppression and under the threat of harassment and that kind of thing. You know, it's nice sometimes if, if, if the powerful people just back off, right? And it would be inviting and easy just to, to, to show favoritism towards somebody who could influence in that way. Or it might be that we just want acceptance or admiration of someone. We, we, we show favorite, favoritism, we favor somebody because we want them to like us. This again is a, it's a, this is a, so common as part of the human experience, we might not even notice it. We sort of become unconscious of it. But it, have you ever noticed yourself trying to impress people you don't even like? It's kind of crazy. It, it really is. Like sometimes somebody who doesn't like us, it's like, oh my gosh. I want you to like me. And then try, you know, do things to get somebody to like you because they don't like you, but you really don't even like them in the first place. Or maybe just don't even know them. But once again, I'm, 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 I'm self-interested in that transaction, you see. It's admiration I can get out of it. On the other side, of course, of favoritism is disfavor towards somebody else. Right? Show disfavor to someone sometimes because it just feels good to be superior. To belittle somebody in some way, to assign someone to a lower station, as it were, just elevates us. And again, we don't want to we don't want that to be true. We certainly don't want to admit that it's true. And again, maybe not true of you, but true of most. But regardless, it fundamentally comes down to partiality is about what someone else can do for us most of the time, self-interested in some way. And then third, it's sin for us to show partiality because it's an a demonstration of inequitable love. If you don't know how to spell inequitable and you're taking notes, just call it love inequality, since that's kind of in book. Unequal love. Look at verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And he goes on there to say, you know, whoever's, whoever's uh, violated the law in one point is guilty of all of you. are a transgressor of the law and subject to the judgment under the law. But you know, you, you want to be judged according to the law of liberty, right? That, that, that law that uh, you, entered, you entered into that relationship with Christ by way of forgiveness that that his commands are the ones you obey. That's the law of liberty. But you like the liberty part of that. You like the grace part of that. That's the law you want to live under. It's kind of what he's getting at there. So, so verse 12 says, Speak and act as those who are to be judged under that law, because judgment that's without mercy, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. 
The one who doesn't show mercy doesn't receive mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. You may remember uh, that Jesus said all the law was summed up in two commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law that the royal law uh, James is referring to here. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and you may also remember that Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? And in answering that question, he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that? And, he, and he, the, the, the parable of the Jew who goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho, falls among thieves and is, you know, uh, almost left to die there. Uh, a couple of prominent Jewish leaders pass him by and a Samaritan actually comes to his aid, right? We know the story. The Samaritan who's supposed to despise Jews, the Jew who probably did despise Samaritans. And Jesus says at the conclusion of that parable, that the one who is the neighbor is the one who showed mercy. And I think that's, that, at least in principle, is the connection James is making here uh, in chapter 2. That the one who truly loves his neighbor loves all men equitably, and it'll be demonstrated through mercy. And the one who shows partiality simply fails to love that way in that moment fails to show the kind of mercy that he's received and so again what does that have to do with me I don't have a problem with this this is kind of the way we think of this I think And I think there are probably two reasons that's less obvious in the church. Like we, again, the, the scenario James describes of a rich man coming in and getting a favored seat and a poor man getting no seat at all, that's hard for us to conceive. I think there are two reasons for that. One, because social class structures like that are just less defined in our culture. Right? I mean, we don't, we don't any longer in American culture have these real defined social classes the way that they have been in many cultures throughout history and in some places still are actually quite well defined. It doesn't mean there is no sense of class. They're just not, uh, they're not nearly as well defined. And I haven't really gone through a thorough study of this, but it appears just, just at a glance through history uh, that... Whatever social class distinctions are present in the culture are reflected in the church. Now, that's not a compliment to us, by the way. Um, but I think it's true. And even the examples I just gave of churches, uh, historic churches in Virginia, there, there are lots of stories of that kind of thing. I would, I would mention again, there, there, there were a certain uh, number of Christian schools started in the uh, late 60s to early 70s, which were started because of uh, desegregation of public schools. Now, that's not true of... Uh, of even most Christian schools that you find around now. And it's certainly an unfair characterization. And people will make that claim as if that's just universally true. But it is absolutely true of some. And it's true of other private schools as well. You might be just curious to do a little research and find out how many private academies were established in 1970. 
And so my point, my point here is to say that like it or not, and it's mostly not, right? But what, whatever social class structures there are in the culture are reflected in the church. And, and it's just the fact that because they're less defined right now, they're, they're less prominent in the church. In other words, it's not that we just grew out of it. It's not that we just became more like Jesus. And so we don't have these uh, problems as much in the church. They're not as present uh, or overt because they're less so in the culture. The second reason, though, is uh, in many ways, churches are just self-segregated along racial, ethnic, and even socioeconomic lines to a certain extent. I, I think I've probably highlighted this point before, um, and there are exceptions, again, to that in churches where that's uh, really not true, but it's generally true in our American church culture. People can choose between multiple churches, right? I mean, there are there's more churches than there are restaurants in Wilmington than that, I think. Actually, that might not be true, but it's a, it's a tight competition, you know. <laughs> But, but in, any, in any given place, you, a person could choose between multiple churches and tend to choose one where they fit in, right? Where they feel comfortable. And, and what ends up happening is there's just a segregating effect to that um, such that some of the problems that don't confront us in this way in church is because we've already segregated them out of our midst. Are you, are you tracking with me on that? Does that make sense? So in other words, we don't have to contend in some ways as much with the receiving the face because there are some faces that will just never darken the doors of our church. And some of our faces that will never darken the doors of others. We, we, we've avoided the problem sort of systemically, and that's uh, not to our credit, really. And, and the point there is, is really not to make us feel guilty about that. It is simply to point out um, that perhaps the reason this, uh, this sort of partiality in the church seems less prevalent um, is because there are cultural factors that make it appear less so. But again, we'd be mistaken to think it's not our issue because we, too, make distinctions and assumptions about other people based on superficial reasons all the time. We do it all the time, and we're probably even unconscious of it. We're often interested in people because of what they can do for us. So it becomes about what we can what we can get from the relationship rather than what we can give to it. We'll invest a little bit more time, be a little bit, you know, kinder to those who, uh, whose friendship can benefit us in some ways. And one of the sad ironies is that when we do that as the church, we actually look right past the other person's spiritual needs. So let's take, for example, the person who's, who's rich, and then there's a, a, a special sort of buttering up to the person because of their wealth and what benefit that might confer to us. 
never enters our mind that rich man might be deeply depressed. Right? Might be just lost as he can be spiritually. Might have uh, a family and, and, and every relationship falling apart. Might actually have come to the church looking uh, to have those needs ministered to. And so we, and we look right past it <laughs> because we see how our need can be met from that relationship. Now that's just an illustration. But again, it's the, the irony in, in showing favoritism like that, showing partiality to somebody, is when we've got our needs in view, we are blinded to the needs of other people entirely. Just look right on past them. The other irony, uh, once again, is that the ones who are disfavored by us are, the, are often the ones who are favored by God. Who, who, who chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Who says that in the kingdom, the last shall be first and the least shall be greatest. And so as always, we, we want to we love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. And so may he just uh, reset our hearts to see people the way he sees them and even show us in our hearts uh, what he sees even right now that would incline us to, to showing more partiality to people than we would care to imagine. Because again, the, the truth of the matter is While the, while the social kinds of distinctions, those things based on race, ethnicity, uh, and, and even socioeconomic things, while they might not be uh, very visibly present in, uh, in any given church, um, those distinctions might not be as well defined in the culture. They are well-rooted in our heart. And, and it would be a gift for God to show us that and just, and just to do surgery to remove it, that we might love uh, more equitably. And that we wouldn't judge in a misguided way because we just wouldn't judge at all. Well, let's close in prayer. Lord, we, we know that there is something there that's true for us. It is subtle for many of us, and again, maybe we think not especially relevant, but Lord, we want to love the way that you love. This was important to you to say to the church through the letter of James, that you said something important for the church to hear. We trust, Lord, that it's important and relevant to us. Would you just show us those places in our hearts where we have biases toward or against certain people for superficial reasons? And 
And Lord, why, while we may have just structured things um, in the way that we've organized our churches such that they, they don't appear to become our problems very readily, uh, Lord, we just acknowledge they may well be obstacles and our moving out even into the community in, in loving our city the way you want us to love them. And as we continue, Lord, to want to be equipped for that, would you extract from us those things that need to be extra- extracted to make us better ambassadors of Jesus? who loved us when we were unlovely. Help us to do the same in Jesus' name. Amen.